You're listening to Manner of Speaking with Greg Mayu. Today's episode Besides a Bullet. Hi everyone, this is the fourth and final chapter in a series of interviews with film projectionists. It features Scott Hart, who worked at an IMAX theater in the Midwest, and a prologue with Joe Stankus, who works at the IFC Center in Manhattan. That brings me to my next question, which was, um, what does it take to make it as a projectionist, or what kind of personalities thrive in that job? I don't know, man. I, I think you gotta, like... Some people freak out. You get, you gotta not freak out. Like, I have this attitude sometimes that I think people confuse with not caring, and it's not that I don't care. I just have this knowledge that like, it's not really gonna matter, or you know, freaking out isn't gonna fix anything. So, I think that's the best quality is just to be the kind of person that if something goes wrong, you just like can't think about like the seven things that are going to get messed up as a result. Okay, I'm going to tell you my story about uh, working at an IMAX theater in the Midwest. I'm going to use the first names of the three people involved in this story. Each of the three people are all named Scott. And that's the truth. They're all three Scots. But I won't use their last names. I've, I've talked to you previously about being an IMAX projectionist, but uh, one of the things, I was hired as the chief projectionist for this theater, and uh, the theater manager explained to me that because of the amount of shows that we'd have to do, that we were going to have to hire me an assistant. So this kid was brought in who was younger than me. I can't remember the exact difference in our ages. I would have been in my late 30s. And he was probably in his early 20s. This guy came in, his name was Scott, and he was his big guy. I can't remember, he might have even been a little taller than me. And he was very, very odd shaped. Uh, after a long time, uh, Myself and other people, we nicknamed him Baby Huey. He never, he never really looked particularly comfortable in his own body. And there was an awkwardness to him that was very, very hard to describe. And he seemed like he had sort of a sweet side to him, but he was also kind of condescending. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we interviewed him and he seemed like he was more than capable to do the job and I could communicate with him. He seemed like more of a frat boy or a guy who was into say sports or something than I was, but he also seemed to like movies and comedy and I said, okay, we can hire this guy. So my name's Scott and I have an assistant and his name's Scott too. And at the theater where we're working, there is this guy who is an usher and who eventually will become like the head of the ushers and his name is Scott as well. 
my relationship with this kid eroded quickly. I remember one night we were having to disassemble a film. Disassembling a large format film means a tremendous amount of physical work, you know, untaping reels and reattaching heads and tails and stuff like that. And you have to work over this long table and this rewinder and all this other stuff. And I remember at one point telling him, you know, can you roll this up and would you please stand over there when you're doing it? Because I was trying to get myself situated between the film canisters we had. He wouldn't do it. And when I asked him why he wouldn't, he said he didn't like being told what to do. This is marvelous. This guy's my assistant. He doesn't like being told what to do. But I'm not the most assertive guy, and I just was like, okay, whatever, let's just get through this. Working with this guy in a large format projection booth, we're isolated a lot. He had a computer he could sit at. I had a computer I could sit at. We had a microwave oven, a bathroom, all this other stuff. It was like a lounge. So I got to see the arcs of his moods, and he was really, really immature, really, really petulant. And I started to notice how he responded and interacted with other people socially. I noticed that he didn't have a lot of friends. He talked about friends, but his friends were always in some other place. His friends were always like this guy he knew in New York or in Pennsylvania or friends he might be visiting in Wisconsin. None of this is, I'm not judging the guy. This is just, all this stuff is just qualifying a situation. I'm not, I wasn't judging him, but like, for instance, he never had a friend come over to the booth to see him, like I did like almost every day. Or he was never like on his way to go see friends after work, which I always thought was kind of odd. But the one thing this kid loved to do was he loved to brag about money and status. He bragged about his car, and he bragged about like, going to sporting events and sitting in lounges and stuff like this. And he apparently had like hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. Uh, he repeatedly referred to a Citibank job in New York that was waiting for him. And he always talked about going back and finishing school or something like that as though he had started college and he wanted to go back and finish like a business school or something. But it was always very vague. And I didn't necessarily think he was lying about all this stuff, but because I actually think he believed what he was telling me. And I don't know what his relationship was with his dad, but he had some sort of fixation on his father. And his father had ingrained in him what I wouldn't actually call like a work ethic necessarily as much as like an ethic involving like acquisition of both wealth and status. One day he came into the booth. I'll never forget this as long as I live because it had such a profound effect on me. And up until this day, I was worried that I'd been putting on weight. I was drinking beer and I was, you know, I was dating a girl in Davenport and like eating, you know, just outrageous meals and all this other stuff. He came into the booth one day and he, it was the happiest I'd ever seen him. And he opened up a Tupperware container and um, he took a plate and out of his backpack, he took a bag of chicken nuggets. It actually looked like a tortoiseshell pattern with all these different separated chicken nuggets going edge to edge all around this plate. And then he put the plate in the microwave and set it on a cook. And with the Tupperware container that he had taken out, he proceeded to reach into his bag. He pulled out a big thing of honey. He took the honey and he did like this in the Tupperware container and he poured two-thirds of the bottle of honey into the Tupperware container. 
capped it and put it back in his bag. Chicken McNuggets were done. Took them out of the microwave. Set it down on the counter next to the Tupperware container. Took a fork, chicken McNugget, into the honey. Over and over again, I sat and I watched this guy eat these chicken McNuggets. And I said, that's it. I'm going on a diet. I looked at this kid and I was like, I have got to stop fucking doing this to myself. Because I wasn't above doing it. I've done that sort of thing too. But seeing it in front of you, it's like when I, it's like when I actually worked as a bartender. Uh, when I first came back to Boston and I was training as a bartender. The experience of sitting, or pardon me, standing behind a bar for seven to eight hours and watching people pound bourbon, you will not want to drink. And I love drinking, but when you first start working as a bartender, you'll sit and you'll watch people like, you know, give me another, you know, whiskey on the rocks or a bourbon or a scotch or this or And you see these people pounding these drinks and, you know, at first you're like, hey, I love booze too. I wish I could have a drink too. And then after a couple of hours, you're like, I really do not want to drink. I, I immediately uh, did the whole hype protein Atkins diet thing. I did a hard hardcore version of the ketosis diet and I switched from beer to wine, from chips to peanuts and beef jerky. I started exercising in the booth and flexing and I dropped about 80 pounds. So, I'm working with a guy we don't get along. Uh, we, we can joke about comedy films, but we have to keep things between us very light. I can't handle him talking about money and status as much as he does. And I know that his life experience is really, really, really limited. So he might drive his nice car back to his apartment. And he may pay his own rent and have a nice stereo and a big TV at home. But I know that this kid is an idiot and his value system is all fucked up. And one thing leads to another, and I might have told you this when I talked about the projection story before, but one day, it was kind of in the wind that it was coming, so I was sort of prepared for it, but I got laid off. And so you've got my assistant who's being paid less than me, and you keep him on, and the theater manager, and they run the shows. He and I remained in touch, and he had told me that he was going to be leaving the IMAX theater and was going to be managing a multiplex cinema in the area. And this was not a lie, he was. And he was going to be managing that with the other Scott I mentioned, the one who's the head of the ushers. At the time, to give you an idea how dated this is, um, he and I were out of touch for a while, but we were back in touch when MySpace rolled around. And he had not changed at all. He has, was still, he was just the same way. Like you could talk to him, you could be like, hey Scott, how's it going? He's like, well, I'll tell you how it's going. I got 300,000 in the bank and I got a Citibank job waiting for me and you know, this stock that I just got rolled over and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking about buying a boat. And over time, I slowly started to get really tired of communicating with him. Like to the point where I became kind of contemptuous of it. And probably in his mind, he would think that I was envious of it, but I'm not. It just became one of these things where it's like, you know, I really don't want to talk to this guy. He's rude. He's obnoxious. He's condescending. I can't relate to him. You know, I think maybe it's probably time for me to move on in my life. And then Facebook came around. We're going on over 10 years since I originally met this guy and worked with him. And um, suddenly he just dropped off the face of the earth. I may have been the one who contacted some people. These were former co-workers from IMAX. And I said, you know, 
have you have you talked to Scott? Do you know what's up with Scott? And they, they were like, no, we we're going to ask you the same thing. So it got kind of weird. And then somehow someone found his obituary. Saying that he had passed away after an illness with no details. And the obituary had been posted, just uh, just to throw it out arbitrarily, the obituary had been posted, like, say, in November of that year, but yet it said he had died in, like, May. And no one could give us any details or know what was going on. Well, I was still in touch with the wife of my general manager from the theater, and she filled me in on what happened. And this is what happened to my assistant. He took that job managing the theater with the other Scott. And the theater was very successful in my hometown area. And as the theater became more successful and did better, he started diving into the credit and identity information of the third Scott, the one he was working with. And he started stealing that guy's information and identity to set up credit cards that he would max out and then move on and set up another credit card. And somewhere along the line of the third Scott being confronted with this information on his credit report, they were able to dig through and find a form or something that my assistant had filled out and put his address on to route mail or bills to his address so that the third Scott, whose identity was being stolen, would not find out about it. This led to my assistant being investigated and he was facing charges for identity theft, credit fraud, and embezzlement from the theater they both managed. So my assistant, this guy with the work ethic and the desire to acquire wealth and status, this guy who had money in the bank, a job waiting for him in New York, who lived well and bragged about it. What was this brainiac's exit strategy? He ran home and blew his brains out. That was his brilliant exit strategy. He didn't face the music. He didn't take responsibility for anything. There's any number of personalities or celebrities or people that are within our popular culture that have done things like this guy did, paid for it, and recovered. But what did this guy do? Runs home and kills himself. And I don't have any sympathy for the guy at all. I just, there's, I, I have days of my life now, and this, and, and this is probably out of contempt. I have days of my life now where I look around and I think, well, this is a, it's a great ride and you missed it. And this, I don't know what was going through this guy's head, besides a bullet. But, you know, he could have, he could have, he could have faced the music on what he did. I think about this guy almost every day now because it's a cautionary tale in my life. Anyone that knows me knows that my life has taken me a lot of really interesting places that I didn't deserve, that I didn't work for, that I didn't save up for, and I didn't plan. 
and you have this guy who did that to excess and then did it so irresponsibly that it all unravels and he decided to end his life. And it, it didn't have to be that way. Literally every day I sit, I sit around thinking, wow, for, you know, how fortunate am I? What a great adventure my life has been in all, in, in, in all humility. And here you have this guy and, you know, that's it. It's all over. I just, I can't even believe that. Apparently he left a note and uh, he requested no funeral. His family had no funeral. And I feel bad for his family because I know that this guy idolized his father. He had these beautiful sisters. He loved his family. And he was just this big, dumb, dopey, goofy kid. But what on earth went on in his head with his value system, I'll never know. I couldn't relate to. I had to get away from and it killed him. I remember thinking, you know, Scott's younger than you. Scott's going to be around for a long time. And you're going to have to be reminded of this jerk for a long time. And you know, I don't. He's dead. And it's just, it just, it, pardon the expression, it just blows my mind. I remember there was a girl that I was talking to in the, back in my hometown area who wanted to get out. And I was giving her this pep talk about what you need to know about getting out of there, moving to another city. And a lot of it came down to just get up and leave. You just have to go. And she wanted a sense of security. Uh, you know, like a lot of people want to move and they want to have a job waiting for them, which is a completely unrealistic, you know, notion in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years to, to expect that anymore. But I told her once, I said, look, money really does not matter. The only thing that money is really good for is giving you a sense of security so you don't have to worry about shit. So like if you have enough money, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat tonight or having a roof over your head for the night. But if you think that money is going to you know, bring you a sense of security where you don't have to worry at all or something, you know, you're completely wrong. You know, just talk to a friend who's bought a house. Most of my friends that have houses are miserable. You know, they don't talk about how great things are because they have a house all they do is bitch about it point is is that then you have a guy like my assistant scott and for whom no amount of money would ever be enough it wouldn't matter and he had already spent and blown and seen more money you know pass through his life than a lot of people that i know and it still didn't matter it wasn't enough and he was still trying to acquire more to the point where it just became nonsensical and then he goes home and he sucks a gun. I just can't even believe that. Like I've, my personal life has hit the skids so many times in so many different ways. And I've had like only one serious brush of coming close to where I was like, that's it, I'm going to kill myself. But still, like I was always able to pull myself back from the edge. But this guy, you know, oh, they caught me. Well, see you guys. Kapow. I don't know. I imagine him coming home. I imagine him racing home in his car and, and running into his apartment in tears and blowing his brains out. I don't imagine any great introspection. I don't imagine him being inebriated. I, I, I just imagine it being full tilt adolescent panic mode. And, you know, he probably died a virgin. I don't know if he ever even visited another country. His life experience was limited to loud music, nice car, sports games, and really wanting to impress other people with stuff that I don't even think he understood the value of. Um, and what on earth he was doing with a gun, I have no idea, but it was probably just something else he purchased to show off.
Some people freak out. You, you gotta not freak out. Like, I have this attitude sometimes that I think people confuse with not caring. And it's not that I don't care, I just have this knowledge that like, it's not really gonna matter or, you know, freaking out isn't gonna fix anything. I think that's the best quality is just to be the kind of person that if something goes wrong, you just like can't think about like the seven things that are gonna get messed up as a result. You know, if the movie gets dropped, you just gotta be like, alright, this movie is completely ruined, but we're gonna try to fix it right now. Sometimes people like to make a big deal about like some shit that's gone wrong. Be like, oh, this is so hard. Like, this is such a problem that I've got myself into. And if you can just not be that and just be like, well, this is wrong, and just tell someone that something's gone horribly wrong. If you can do that, you can figure it out.